This episode is brought to you by Sprint. Confused by how wireless carriers talk about their networks? Sprint gets it. The truth is, all networks are great. Try Sprint for 30 days, and if you're not 100% satisfied, simply return your phone, and they'll refund your phone costs, service charges, and related fees. No gimmicks. Try Sprint today. Applies to new lines of service. Select exclusion supply. See Sprint.com slash returns for details. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm... Do you really want to know? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like an honest answer, please. I think our listeners deserve honesty. My eldest is just driving me crazy. It's just, I, I think it's early... Can seven-year-olds become hormonal? I don't know, but... Yeah. They can. You don't want to go into the whole thing, but they tend to have, like, surges, so they get, like, really terrible for a little while but then it then it evens out for a while so there's a light at the end of the tunnel yeah like when he's 30 I think things will probably calm down oh that's okay then (laughs) only only 23 more years only 23 more years (laughs) well I just want to welcome everyone to our insight episode before we get started we do have a favor to ask podcast.study if you go out to that, you just type in podcast.study and it redirects you to the direct link. It is, I don't know, five minutes or less, just asking you questions. It it shows our demographics, but it also shows the advertisers how responsive our audience is. We have not been shy that we want to make Insight bigger. We want to provide more content. We want to maybe do spinoff shows, maybe do a YouTube channel. We have We have more ideas than we have time. But we can get time if we have some advertisers helping funding our lifestyle of paying mortgages and buying groceries. If you guys could go out to podcast.study really quick, just fill that out. It'll really help us out. It'll help the show grow. With that out of the way, we're going to talk about the Tylenol murders today. In late September of 1982, seven people in the Chicago area died after taking extra-strength Tylenol, which is a very common over-the-counter pain medication. The cause of these deaths was cyanide poisoning, but the poisoner was never found. And we're going to go ahead and talk about what happened, go over some similar crimes, and then discuss the theories and suspects surrounding this case. Are you ready, Allie? Ready. All right. We should probably start with what Tylenol is. Tylenol is the brand name here in the U.S., for a medication called acetaminophen. And I know it has both acetaminophen and the brands have different names in Australia, right? Correct. So we have paracetamol, most commonly called penadol, and then we also have the stronger medication being ibuprofen, and that's nurofen. We're talking specifically about Tylenol, And for those who don't know, and I can't imagine there are many out there who don't know about this particular medication, it is a mild pain reliever. It's mild enough that accidental overdoses are not rare. It's rough on your liver, and people will often keep taking it when it doesn't really help their pain enough, so they take too much of it. And it's also in other multi-symptom medications like cold and flu medicines, So people will take Tylenol for their headache associated with their flu, and then they'll go take a multi-symptom cold reliever that also has acetaminophen in it, and they accidentally take too much. But an overdose of Tylenol will not cause you to suddenly drop dead. You'll have acute liver failure, but not sudden death. So when people started dropping dead in late September of 1982, After taking extra strength Tylenol, an investigation began. We're going to go ahead and keep calling it Tylenol because it was very specifically this brand that was affected. And we're not talking tablets or liquid. Potassium cyanide's not stable enough for either of those. These were those old capsules that you could pull apart and the medication is filled inside of them. Tylenol was manufactured by a company called McNeil which is part of a larger company called Johnson & Johnson. Let's start with the victims. Mary Kellerman was the first victim. She woke up on Wednesday, September 29th, 1982, not feeling well. She was 12 years old, so her parents let her stay home from school. 
doing what any parent does when their kid is sick, they gave her something to relieve her sore throat symptoms. They gave her extra strength Tylenol. While she was still in the bathroom, her father heard a thump. He called out to her and she didn't answer, so he opened the bathroom door and found her lying there unconscious. Paramedics arrived and they tried to do everything they could to revive her, but she was pronounced dead shortly after 10 a.m. In their notes, it was written that the only medication she had taken that day was the Tylenol, but in the words of one of the firefighters, everyone in the world takes Tylenol. There wasn't anything odd about someone feeling unwell and taking Tylenol. An investigation started. 12-year-olds don't generally just drop dead. But she had been feeling unwell, so all of that is reported to the investigators and an autopsy was ordered. Two hours after Mary died, 27-year-old Adam Janice stopped at the store after picking up his kids from preschool. He took the day off work. He was a postal worker since he had the start of a cold. He went to the store and bought some Tylenol. After lunch with the kids, he told his family he was going to take two Tylenol and lie down. Minutes after taking them, though, he collapsed. Resuscitation was attempted, but it failed. The doctor wasn't sure why he died, but it was suspected his death was somehow related to his heart, so probably a heart attack. His family, and we're talking about parents and siblings, They had all gone to the hospital, but after his death, they returned with his wife to the Janice's home for the evening to be together. 30 minutes after Adam Janice died, another 27-year-old collapsed. Mary Lynn Reiner was the mother to four children, and her youngest was only a week old. Whether she was not feeling well or she was just dealing with some pain related to childbirth, I'm not sure but she took some extra strength Tylenol and collapsed. Her husband walked in shortly after she collapsed. She too was rushed to the hospital, but life-saving measures also failed. Something to note with Mary Lynn, though, she didn't usually use or take extra strength Tylenol. She had a bottle of regular Tylenol that had six extra strength pills in the same bottle, and she had taken two, so there had been eight to start with. One theory that we'll get to later is that her extra strength Tylenol was from her discharge from the hospital and that she had just added them to her regular bottle of Tylenol just to have one container for the pain medication. At about 5pm, and we are still on the same day as these other deaths, the Janice family were at home talking about Adam's death earlier that day and they were making plans for the funeral. And it's crazy to think that this young dad woke up that morning feeling just a bit off, you know, snuffy nose and a headache. And by that evening, here is his family making plans for his funeral. Adam's brother Stanley, who was 25, and Stanley suffered from chronic back issues. He asked his 19-year-old wife, Teresa, to get him some Tylenol for the pain. Teresa herself was dealing with the pain from a headache from the stress of the day, which is, of course, understandable. Stanley took two Tylenol, and then Teresa also took two. Stanley was the first to collapse, with Teresa collapsing soon after. First responders said it was odd because what is the likelihood that whatever happened to Stanley would then happen to Teresa just moments later? Stanley died later that day, with Teresa dying two days after that. Now, Helen Jensen, who was a public health nurse, was called in to help figure out what the heck was going on here. Nothing had been linked to young Mary and Mary Lynn's deaths yet, but obviously it's concerning when three people in the same family die in the same way within hours of each other especially when they are all young and relatively healthy. This is when the real investigation of the deaths begin. If you are a nurse or know any nurses, you know their method is very much to ask questions. So Jensen started asking questions of the Janice family and the investigators started going through the house to see if there was something that they could have ingested. It was Jensen who noticed the Tylenol bottle was new and only had six pills missing. 
And with the normal dose of extra strength Tylenol being two capsules, well, it's simple math. Two capsules times three victims, and there you have the six missing pills. So that night, the bottle of Tylenol was taken in for testing. They also collected the Tylenol from young Mary's house because they saw that in the report and they were starting to connect the dots. But before the cause could be discovered, the deaths continued. Mary McFarland, and yes, this is a third Mary, was at work and complaining of a headache. At 6.30 p.m., she went in the back room and took some Tylenol. No one knows how much, but it was obviously at least one. She collapsed like the others, but this time one of the first responders did suspect it was poison right off the bat, though he didn't recall years later exactly what had led him and the others around him to that belief. She was 31 years old, and she left behind two young sons, ages 4 and 18 months. And from what I understand, the pills were from her own purse. No one gave them to her. The last death in this series was Paula Prince, and this is actually the only death that had happened in Chicago. All the rest were in outlying suburbs. Paula was a 35-year-old flight attendant, and she had landed in Chicago about an hour after Stanley Janis had died on Wednesday. And on her way home, she swung by a pharmacy and picked up some Tylenol. So again, we're talking the same day everyone else took this Tylenol. She had gotten some Tylenol. By Friday, she had missed a dinner with her sister, hadn't answered multiple calls. She was a no-show for a flight that she was scheduled to work on Friday. So the police went to her apartment for a welfare check, and they found her dead on the floor. The Tylenol bottle was still open on the bathroom vanity, and it appears she only made it a few steps before collapsing. While all seven victims took the Tylenol on the same day, they died across multiple days. Adam Janis, his brother Stanley, and young Mary Kellerman all died on September 29th. Mary McFarland and Mary Reiner died on September 30th. Teresa Janis was taken off life support and died on October 1st. Paula Prince was found on October 1st, though it's believed that she did die on September 29th, if not the early hours of the 30th. Back to the investigators. The public health nurse Jensen, she put out the idea that these deaths were due to the Tylenol. They'd collected the Tylenol from both the Janice home and young Mary's home, as you said, Charlie. The doctor who had treated the Janice family was racking his brain for a cause, and all he could land on was cyanide poisoning. But cyanide poisoning was so uncommon that he had never even tested for it before. The hospital did not have the capacity to do that kind of testing, so they sent the blood samples to another lab that could perform the test. The investigator noticed that the batch numbers on the two bottles matched. On the medical examiner's instructions, he opened some of the capsules and said they smelled strongly of almonds. Now, I've read a few numbers thrown out there of how many people can smell cyanide, 60%, 50%, 40%. But for those who can smell it, it is said to smell like bitter almonds. But what is clear is that the Tylenol was spiked with potassium cyanide. Now, I can read your brain, Charlie. You are wondering, what is potassium cyanide, aren't you? That's amazing. Well, I'm so glad you thought about asking. Because potassium cyanide is a highly toxic compound that often comes in crystal lumps. It can be crushed into more of a powder that can then be poured into the empty Tylenol capsules. Ingestion of the poison acts rather quickly and it kills the enzyme necessary to transport oxygen through the blood. So you can be on oxygen support in the hospital, but if your red blood cells can't pick up on the oxygen, you will still asphyxiate. It starts affecting the body quickly. You get headaches, dizziness, and shortness of breath. Even in small amounts that are well below the threshold for a lethal dose, you'll still get significant symptoms. But it's when it's consumed in larger amounts, like we see in this case, that's when it can cause immediate unconsciousness and rapid death. 
On September 30th, around 1 a.m., the lab reports came back showing doses of cyanide far, far beyond what was necessary to kill young Mary and Adam Janice. Knowing it had to be the Tylenol, the CEO from Johnson & Johnson arrived in the morning and they showed him the information. There was a press conference at 10 in the morning telling people to just stop taking the Tylenol. And by 3 p.m., Johnson & Johnson announced a recall of all Tylenol from the lot number involved in the Janice family case and young Mary. There would later be another lot number added to that list of recall. I'm wondering how many actual bottles of Tylenol were actually affected. I mean, you can recall a product all you like, but I know in my experience, it can be just easier to throw it away than return the product. It actually is something that's come up. A lot of people probably just threw it away or flushed the pills down the toilet. The recall was conducted by Johnson & Johnson, and they were in charge of testing. But did they actually test all of the Tylenol that came in? I don't know. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pills to test. So it's possible they only spot tested. Exactly, because it wouldn't mean just testing one or two pills in every bottle. You'd have to test every single pill in every single bottle in that batch. Right, because the various bottles had between two and 13 cyanide pills, but they still had the regular pill count. So every bottle that had cyanide pills also had regular Tylenol pills. I'm guessing that the cyanide ones were on the top, and that's why people... This had like a 100% kill rate, is that people had taken them. But then again, if the, let's just say the cyanide capsules were put in in the store, then in transportation from the house to the store back to Johnson & Johnson, those capsules can be mixed around in the bottle and not necessarily on top. That's true. How medicine bottles are so that that rattling around of the capsules doesn't happen and breaks them up is they stuff the cotton in there. But if people had already opened the bottles, they would have taken that cotton out and the capsules would have been all shaken up in the process. The night of Friday, October 1st, after the final death and the discovery of Paula's body, the mayor of Chicago ordered all of the Tylenol to be taken off the shelves, regardless of lot number. And then on Tuesday, October 5th, so six days after the poisonings, Johnson & Johnson ordered all Tylenol to be removed from shelves nationwide. It was a value of $100 million in medicine, and in today's money, it would be two and a half times that amount. At least one more bottle on the shelf was found to have cyanide pills in it, from a store not too far from where Paula Prince had bought her tainted bottle. But like I said, we don't know how many were, were really tested. The investigation followed a few angles. One, disgruntled employee. Two, family member of the victims. Or three, someone conducting the switch at the retail stores. And the last theory that someone conducted the switch at the retail stores is what you have to thank for tamper-resistant packaging. That plastic that's wrapped around the top of the bottle and the foil or paper lid that you have to pull off on the inside and your Tylenol capsules coming in a box instead of just loose containers on the shelf, that all came from this incident. And the idea that a quote-unquote madman was randomly poisoning people by tampering with medication off the shelf. We don't actually have even capsules come in bottles anymore. They're all in packets and being double packaged, double plastic wrapped. I'm pretty sure capsules that you buy, you can't, they're sealed now that you can't pull them apart like you could back then. Now they did yeah. reintroduce ones that could be opened and we'll get to that later, but I'm pretty sure they don't make those for, you'll get them from a pharmacy who filled the medication but you won't get them from an off-the-counter situation yep. like Tylenol. The same here, yes. So let's talk about the lines of inquiry and the thinking behind him. This case remains unsolved, and I don't think we're going to be cracking this case today, but 
We do want to hear your thoughts after you listen to this because there's a lot to discuss here. So definitely send those to us either through email or, I mean, our Facebook group is a great place to discuss these cases. The first theory we're going to talk about is that it was a family member of one of the victims. This sounds like something from a TV show, but it does have a precedent. The idea is simply that a family member or someone close to a victim wanted to kill them, and so they poisoned their Tylenol with cyanide. But to keep the heat off of them, they put pills in multiple bottles for others to be poisoned. So then there would be no way to know which of the five poison bottles was the real motivator. And this isn't unheard of. In 1986, a Seattle-area woman named Susan Snow, she took two extra-strength Exedrin capsules for a headache. Unlike Tylenol, which is a single medication, Exedrin is a mix of acetaminophen, aspirin and caffeine. Her husband Paul also took two capsules before he left for work. Susan's teen daughter found her mum collapsed on the bathroom floor with a weak pulse. She died later that day in hospital. During her autopsy, an assistant smelt bitter almonds, so of course they ran the test for cyanide poisoning. Again, this isn't a normal test for a tox screen, so they most likely wouldn't have run it without that clue of bitter almonds. Police found three more cyanide pills in the bottle. After this made the news, a woman named Stella Nicol contacted the police. Her husband Bruce had died in a similar fashion the week before, but the cause of death was ruled to be natural causes. She believed that he may have been a victim as well. Police found two Excedrin bottles in their home with poisoned pills, which were bought on different days in different stores. Suspicion eventually fell on Stella, but because they never found where she could have gotten her hands on the cyanide, it was a bit of a circumstantial case. Firstly, green flecks were found on the cyanide pills. These turned out to be an algae killer for aquariums, and the exact blend of compounds were the same brand Stella used on her home aquarium. It was argued that she must have used the same tools to crush that as she did to crush the cyanide. Second, there were five contaminated bottles found in total, and Stella owned two of them. Now that seems odd, particularly since she didn't purchase them at the same time or from the same place. And third, if it seems odd to you that Stella was the one that alerted the police to the chance her husband was poisoned, when she would have otherwise gotten away with it, well, it would probably interest you to know that she had a life insurance policy on her husband that paid out more than double if the death was an accident and not natural causes. This wasn't enough to warrant a trial until Stella's grown daughter came forward and pointed them back to her mother's direction, claiming her mother had spoken about killing her husband and that she had looked up ways to do it at the library. And investigators did find her library checkout history, including books on poisons. Stella maintains her innocence, but is serving a 90-year sentence for the murders. She's eligible for parole next year, in 2018. In another similar case, also in that greater Seattle area as the Nickel case, Joseph Mailing was convicted in the tampering of Sudafed. Sudafed is an over-the-counter allergy medication. In 1991, Mailing's wife, Jennifer, had taken the pill at her husband's insistence. He claimed she was snoring at night due to congestion, which may have been due to allergies. She took the pill and she collapsed. She was rushed to the hospital unconscious. She remained in a coma, but amazingly, she survived. Prosecutors contend that Mailing, afraid he would come under suspicion, decided to take action. Two weeks later, two other people in the area died from cyanide poisoning after taking Sudafed they had purchased at stores near their homes. On the recall, five tampered with packages were found. It was discovered that Mailing, too, had a life insurance policy on his wife that he had recently added a right or two that would pay out significantly more if her death was an accident. There had also been a domestic violence-related 911 call to the home six weeks prior. 
They wiretapped his home and recorded him trying to convince people, including his wife, who believed him to be innocent, not to cooperate with the investigation. They found where they believed he purchased the cyanide and the fake name they think he used. There were no smoking guns here, but the jury was still persuaded by the bulk of the circumstantial evidence against him, and he was convicted and is serving a life sentence. But if we walk through the Tylenol victims, Adam Janus bought his own medication on that day and took it shortly after he got home. So it's unlikely he was the target, since no one knew ahead of time that he would be taking Tylenol that day. Someone would have had to store the pills and slip them in in that short time between when he bought it and took it. That's too big of a stretch for me. Stanley and Teresa had taken from Adam's bottle, so we know they weren't targeted. Paula bought her own bottle that day, and she lived alone, so there was no one who could have tampered with hers. That would just leave the three Marys. Investigators did explore people close to the victims, but nothing was found. Okay, nothing was nothing was found that was strong enough for investigators to go public with. I'm not saying nothing was found. I just don't know because they never went public with it. But it doesn't seem like the family angle panned out. More popular than the family did it theory is the idea of a madman out to do mass harm. The profile that's referenced the most was developed by former FBI agent and famed true crime author John Douglas. So we'll just run through the main points of this profile. This would have been a male loner who was motivated by rage. Rage was at society as a whole, not to a specific person, and not to the people who were victimized, or to the company of Johnson & Johnson itself, just society as a whole. It's possible he has contacted people about these complaints about society, probably someone in power, and that person didn't listen to him, didn't resolve it, blew him off, something like that, and that fed his rage. He may have undergone psychiatric treatment in the past to deal with his anger. He most likely lived in the Chicago area because he knew the stores to target, and he probably had his own means of transportation. Chicago has a lot of public transportation, but since most of these attacks occurred in the suburbs, it wouldn't have been so easy for him to get around to all those individual stores relying solely on public transportation. Of course, he would have had access to potassium cyanide, Because that's not that easy to get just as a person off the street, it would have likely been through his work. This would mean something like photo processing, chemical manufacturing, or, I mean, gold and silver mining industry. That's really where you would find potassium cyanide. But his job would not have been as a higher up. If he worked in a chemical manufacturing plant, he wouldn't have been a chemist. He probably worked a menial entry-level job and probably for low wages. This would have fed into his idea that society was doing him wrong. Now, my big question here is why didn't he ever do it again? Or why didn't he send a manifesto to the authorities? I often think about that myself, but I wonder if someone pulled uh, Stella Nicole before she did. As you mentioned earlier, maybe it was a family member. So what I'm saying is one of the people killed or possibly someone else for all we know that never took the Tylenol before it was found to be tampered, they were the actual target and the other people were just collateral damage to cover it up. So we're not talking about a serial killer or madman here. We're talking about just someone that was a target and once they were killed by the Tylenol or by some other means... That's why it was such an isolated event, and then it stopped. And that's actually a really good point that I hadn't thought about until you just said it, that the person targeted may not have actually been one of the victims. It could be someone, this recall happened very quickly. Yes. And it could have been someone who just hadn't taken their Tylenol yet. The third major theory before we talk about specific suspects in this case was that it was an inside job. This could overlap into the madman theory, only the madman was working within the McNeil factory instead of scoping out retail stores. Now, a former Johnson & Johnson employee turned whistleblower author, and his name is Scott Bartz, he is the main voice behind this theory. 
Bart's wrote a book called The Tolanol Mafia that outlined his entire theory. So if you want a more in-depth look, you should definitely check out his book. It's 500 pages long and about 100 of these are footnotes. So this is one book that isn't lacking in the detail department. Bart's worked specifically in distribution, so he understands that process. And even though the poisoned pills came from two different factories, one was in Pennsylvania and the other one in Puerto Rico, he says they still could have been packaged in the same place. If that is true, it really wouldn't be all that hard for someone to slip a little something-something being the cyanide-laced pills into the filling line. Obviously, I won't go into all of his thoughts here because we would still be here next Monday, but there was a few that stood out to me. First, no one saw the madman. If someone took the bottles off the shelves, refilled them with cyanide pills, and then put them back on the shelves in four or five different stores, how is it possible that no one saw them? Did the madman shoplift the Tylenol bottles and then put them back, or did he... Or for that matter, a she, we really don't know, did they purchase them? Because how did all of this happen so far under the radar? Secondly, the number of pills in the bottles was exactly what it should be. This is consistent with the bottles being from an automated filling line. But on the flip side, the madman could have just been meticulous, so it would look less suspicious to the person opening the bottle. And finally, Mary Lynn Reiner. She was the woman who just had the baby a week early. She didn't buy extra strength Tylenol. What they found at her house was a bottle of regular Tylenol with six extra strength Tylenol added in. And it's believed she had taken two. Now, from a person who we don't have Tylenol in Australia, I imagine that the two capsules look different. Were the ones that she'd taken extra strength she just didn't realise? They believe she knew she was taking extra strength. I think what the assumption is, is that she had either just a few extra strength Tylenol pills at the bottom of a bottle, or she had them loose for some reason, like she had gotten them from the hospital, and she just put them in the container she had. Because they would be like different colors to designate the dosage, Okay, it isn't like she would have taken it and thought it was... Just the regular. Right, the regular. I mean, it could be possible that the madman accidentally put eight in there, but I think if she opened it and saw eight pills that didn't match the rest, she wouldn't have taken them. No. Well, for Bart's argument, he claims that she got it from the hospital when she was discharged. Now, if this is true, this would be definitive proof that there is no madman in the stores because hospital pharmacies are closed to the public. You can't exactly walk around and shop from the shelves. The medication is distributed directly from the pharmacist to the patient. It would have had to been delivered to the hospital already tampered with. Surely the FBI can prove or disprove where Mary Lynn Reiner got those extra strength Tylenol pills from. For his part, Bart claims they haven't because the government is complicit in the whole cover-up. And this sort of p- falls apart for me. Mary Lynn was the only person discharged from that hospital who became sick. Yeah. She had got she had had the baby a week earlier, so she would have been out of the hospital at a minimum for a few days. So what are the odds all the cyanide pills ended up with her? It would also be a huge coincidence that she took the medication on the same day that the other Tylenol bottles were purchased. I didn't think of that that way, but it does seem strange that they all took it basically the same day. Right. And I did not read Bart's book. I will confess that. So I can't, I feel like I need to reserve my complete judgment of this theory until I do read it. Those who have read it seem to find the information compelling. I just have a few questions that perhaps reading the book would clear that up. The question is, why would they cover this up? And the truth is that Johnson & Johnson is liable for everything that happens from the start of the process through when the bottles of medication are unloaded at the retail location. If the switch happened, 
during manufacturing, processing, filling, distribution, or even delivery, Johnson & Johnson would be responsible. Now, if it happened on the store shelves, they would have a much lower responsibility. To further Bartz's ideas a little bit, in 1986, there was another cyanide death involving extra-strength Tylenol. This happened in Yonkers, New York. The medication was purchased on February 4th, but it wasn't opened until the 7th when 23-year-old Diane Ellsroth was visiting her boyfriend's parents' house. She had a headache, so her boyfriend went to find some Tylenol. He opened the package, which at this time was tamper-resistant, and he brought her two pills. She took them and said she was going to go to bed because she wasn't feeling well. Thinking she was sleeping in the next day because she wasn't feeling well, no one immediately checked on her. But when they did, sometime around lunchtime, she had died. This death coming after the tamper-resistant packaging was alarming. The boyfriend's mother, who bought the Tylenol, and the boyfriend who opened it, both said they did not notice anything odd about the packaging. It all seemed normal. And the FBI first reported that they didn't see any signs of tampering. The box and the adhesive on the box was consistent with being packed in the factory and then opened by the boyfriend. There was no evidence that the plastic wrap around the top had been removed and then heat sealed back in place, and the aluminum cover was not torn or punctured in a way inconsistent with how the boyfriend opened it. And the adhesive keeping it in place was consistent with what the manufacturer used when the foil seal was first applied. So, again, tamper-resistant packaging, a box, a plastic wrap around the cap, and then the foil seal inside. The FBI later reversed this statement saying that it wasn't tampered with and said that there were signs of tampering, but they needed to use some specialized equipment to discover it. But I looked and I couldn't find anywhere where they said what that tampering actually was. So was this cyanide poisoning after the tamper-resistant packaging was introduced evidence that the tampering was somehow happening on the production side of things? Well, you'd think it would have to be. Right. Unless the boyfriend did it, but that doesn't seem... I'm sure they looked at that angle and that didn't seem likely. Well, that would be the first angle they would look at, you would imagine. I, yeah, I would think so, especially if they're using specialized equipment to look for signs of tampering. They would have looked at the boyfriend, any motivation he had, and didn't find anything. Let's go ahead and move on and look at the main theory is that it was someone, a madman, if you will, at the retail location. So let's walk through, I mean, really the just the main people that come up when we're talking about the the possible madman. A suspect of sorts who came up more recently is Ted Kaczynski, who you also may know as the Unabomber. Kaczynski was a mathematical genius. He entered into Harvard at 16 and was an assistant professor at Berkeley by 25. And between 1978 and 1999, he mailed bombs to multiple people, killing three and injuring 23. He was caught after his manifesto was published and his brother and sister-in-law recognised both the writing style and the anti-industrial belief system he had. If you're asking how a bomber came on the radar of a poisoning case, well, you are all asking great questions today. But it's believed by some that the cyanide poisonings were the work of a domestic terrorist who was either trying to attack the US as a whole or just Johnson and Johnson, and that is in line with Kaczynski's actions. Kaczynski, for his part, denies that he had anything to do with it. However, his parents lived in the area these deaths occurred, and he was living with them at the time. He often moved between his isolated living in Montana and life with his family in Illinois. Two months before the Chicago-area Tylenol deaths, there was the death of a young man named Jay Mitchell, he was 19, from cyanide poisoning, and his family reported that he had taken Tylenol before his death. 
tests showed the same amount of cyanide in his system as the Chicago victims had in theirs. And his death was in Wyoming, along the route that Kaczynski would take to go between his parents' house and his cabin in Montana. So did the Unabomber do a test run of his cyanide plan in the Wyoming area before engaging in a larger attack in the Chicago area? Interestingly, the store in Wyoming where Jay's mother bought the extra strength Tylenol he took was supplied from the Chicago area. So is it possible the tainted drug was in the supply system for months before this incident in September? That would definitely support Scott Bartz's theory that contamination happened on the Johnson & Johnson side of things. It seems unlikely to me only because why would there be two months of no deaths and then seven deaths in a matter of days? Yeah, that makes sense. Jay's mother did not suspect the Tylenol at the time because why would she? So she didn't save the bottle. So it's unclear if it was the same lot number. They only know that the supply chain was similar because that store only gets their Tylenol from a Chicago area supplier. So they knew it had to have come from there. Back to Kaczynski, though, while we don't have known security footage of the tamperer, we do have a still of Paula buying the Tylenol that would kill her. This particular security camera was one that didn't take video, but rather took still images every few seconds. There is a bearded man in the background who has been described as watching Paula buy the Tylenol. Some believe that that could be Kaczynski, Though, to call this image blurry, that would be an understatement. I will put this image up on our Instagram page, and I might also do a side-by-side image of that still image and Kaczynski in our Facebook group, and you can all let us know what you think. In 2011, the FBI requested voluntary DNA samples from a few people, and one of those was Ted Kaczynski. We know Kaczynski was among the people because he made a statement about it. Taking DNA samples makes me wonder if a re-examination of the Tylenol bottles with modern methods may yield some DNA. If they could match it with someone who has no reason to have handled the bottles, they might actually find the person responsible for the poisonings. Another suspect you'll see brought up but dropped almost as quickly is Lori Dan. And I hesitate to go too much into her case because I personally find this even less likely than the Unabomber. But she's listed everywhere out there, so we'll cover her. We'll cover her as well. Lori Dan was a 30-year-old divorced woman who worked primarily as a babysitter. She had been accused of odd behavior by some of her employers, including stealing food and clothing. She would ride elevators over and over again and only touch metal if she was wearing rubber gloves. Dan had off and on sought help for her mental health issues since childhood, and she was being primarily treated for obsessive-compulsive disorder and mood disorder. In 1988, she laced rice cereal snacks and juice boxes with arsenic and sent them to some of her babysitting clients. She then went on a spree in a school, shooting five children. An eight-year-old died in the attack. Then that same day, she essentially took a family hostage. She holed up in their house. Police surrounded the house in the standoff, and she killed herself in a bedroom of the house. Now, her story has a whole lot more detail than this, but the point that brings her into this conversation is that she did lace rice cereal snacks and juice boxes with a poison and attempted to poison children. Now there are some differences here. One, she knew the people she was trying to poison. Two, she used arsenic and she didn't use enough of it. She used very little and anyone who tried any of the snacks or the juice boxes immediately wouldn't continue drinking or eating it because it tasted so bad. And three, she was extremely sloppy about it. The juice boxes were leaking. The rice cereal snacks were obviously messed with. None of it was the sophistication we see 
with someone taking Tylenol bottles off the shelves, carefully filling them, carefully putting them back. If Lori Dan did it, she would have like cyanide powder all over her body. Like she just did not have the organization or the sophistication to have done these attacks. Though I see why some people would think of her when they think of a poisoning in the area. I don't, as you said, I don't think she had the capacity to undertake such a sophisticated operation such as the Tylenol poisonings. If people want to read more on her, they can, but it's very clear she was mentally unstable. Yes. And she had the disorganized thought patterns of someone who is mentally unstable in the way she was. The next suspect is Roger Arnold. He was questioned early on after a tavern owner named Martin St. Clair. He tipped police off that Arnold both worked as a dock hand for a grocery store in a chain where the poison Tylenol was sold and that he told him that he had potassium cyanide in his home. Arnold had a light connection to one of the victims, Mary Reiner. This is one of those cases that you'll hear reported two ways – that he worked in the dual grocery store warehouse with either Mary's father or father-in-law. It's also reported that his wife was in a mental hospital near the store where Mary bought her Tylenol. Though if we remember from an earlier theory, Mary supposedly bought regular Tylenol and not the extra strength type. He was questioned and his home was searched. They did find some unlicensed guns and chemicals because... Here is the plot twist. He was a home chemist. He said his DIY chemistry setup was nothing illegal, but he wouldn't disclose what it actually was for. He did have potassium carbonate, which honestly is nothing more than a harmless table salt. But as we know from other cases we've covered, like the Lindy Chamberlain case, for example, being cleared by the police and being cleared by society and the media These are two vastly different things. The constant scrutiny and suspicion led him to kill John Stanisha, who was a man that resembled Martin Sinclair. And while Arnold claimed the shooting was accidental, the state claimed that he was stalking Sinclair and mistook John for him when he was shot. It was reported he said, you turned me in before firing. Arnold was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in jail but he was released in about half that time. He has since died. I know you're all thinking what I was thinking, and can you make potassium cyanide from potassium carbonate? And I'm not a chemist, and I have the college transcript to prove that I never will be a chemist, but I do know that cyanide is carbon and nitrogen, and carbonate is carbon and oxygen, so could you just do like a bond switcheroo thing and make potassium cyanide and apparently you can i asked two people with phds in chemistry to let me know if this was possible and it appears it is possible it's difficult it's difficult to get quantities of it and it's really unlikely that arnold did this in his home chemistry setup and left absolutely no trace of doing it again i think that Arnold would lack the sophistication and the organization to carry out such a complex operation such as this. I agree with that. The next suspect, and probably the one you'll hear the most, came on the radar of investigators on October 6, 1982, just about a week after the poisonings. Johnson & Johnson received a letter that read, Gentlemen, as you can see, It is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account 84495979 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. 
A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. So I'd like to thank my husband for reading that letter for us. This letter was traced based on fingerprints and handwriting analysis to James William Lewis. Lewis grew up in Missouri with an adoptive family who reportedly couldn't handle his behavior. At 19, he chased his mother with an axe and brutally beat his stepfather, his father having died a few years before. At 20, he attempted suicide and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He said the violent outburst and the suicide attempt were just part of a ruse to avoid the draft in the Vietnam War. He met his wife, Leanne, at the University of Missouri here in Kansas City. They had a daughter who died at the age of five after an operation to correct a heart defect caused by Down syndrome. James was described as intelligent, sensitive, and prone to fly off the handle at minor issues, and he became the suspect of a murder here in Kansas City and was arrested. The charges were dropped after his attorney was able to get a lot of the evidence against him tossed out, but he was soon on the police radar again for some pretty serious fraud allegations. He and his wife decided to go ahead and get out of Dodge, and they moved to Chicago in December of 1981 under the names Robert and Nancy Richardson. Leanne worked for a company that eventually went under, and it bounced her last check. Now, the place she cashed the check was coming after her for them to get their money back. They tried to resolve this and get the money from the company, but there was no money to get. And on September 4th, 1982, so we're talking the beginning of that month of the poisonings, they packed up and left for New York City, having not paid back the money. But months before they left, but months before they left, for some reason, Leanne had run some of the envelopes through the postage meter of the company that screwed her over. I mean, it's an odd thing to do, stealing postage, since it's not like postage is that expensive, but this does matter later with the letter, because the extortion letter was mailed using one of those envelopes. So the metered stamp pointed right back to Leanne's old boss. Now that bank account listed on the letter, that was also an account associated with Leanne's boss. So while some may argue that Lewis was trying to make money off of this tragedy, it looks to me like he was actually trying to get back at Leanne's boss by framing him. He never would have been able to access the money deposited into that account, even if Johnson & Johnson paid him. Whether he wanted the boss to end up in jail over this or just wanted him to go through the very embarrassing and frightening experience of being on the FBI's radar for a mass murder, who knows? And this plan backfired. It was Lewis and his wife who were on the radar. The FBI learned they were living in New York. They moved frequently and used aliases but remained in New York City except that Lewis kept writing letters. One letter was to the White House telling then-US President Ronald Reagan that the murders would continue if there wasn't a change to the tax laws. It seemed to be another attempt to frame Leanne's boss. But then, as himself, he began writing to papers in Chicago and Kansas City. He denied involvement and then pointed out that he had left the Chicago area a month previous to the murders. He also denied his wife had any involvement or knowledge in what he had done with the letter writing. Lewis was eventually found and arrested while he was reading in the library. Knowing he was writing to Midwest newspapers, the FBI just assumed he was accessing them in public spaces like the library. The librarian spotted him and called it in. Leanne turned herself in the next day, but refused to help. Lewis was found guilty of extortion in 1983 and was paroled in 1999. He and Leanne relocated to Massachusetts. In 2009, when the case was under review again, the FBI searched and removed items from James Lewis's house, and he continued to deny any involvement in the murders. And so far, no concrete evidence has been found against him, or at least nothing they felt they could take to court and charge him with. He points to having been in New York during the suspected time of the Tylenol cyanide switch, but it's 
possible he planted them a row or two back before he left? Or he didn't have a job in New York. Is it possible that he went back to Chicago to place them on the shelves? If he wanted to set up Leanne's boss for something, why did he just wait for some random bad thing to happen? He could have set it up himself and then sent the letters. If you remember that blurry security camera still that some say looks like Ted Kaczynski, we'll go ahead and put up some more side-by-sides because... As blurry as it is, it could also be Lewis. One more thing about this video in general before we wrap up. It's noted that this man seems suspicious because he's watching Paula Prince as she's buying Tylenol. Paula Prince was a stunning woman. A man, or anyone from that matter, caught on camera looking at her doesn't exactly scream suspicious to me. So, Allie, on this whole case, what are your thoughts? Look, honestly, with the majority of these suspects, I just don't see it. I think the killer, madman, tamperer, whatever you want to call them, I think it's someone hiding in plain sight, maybe someone that they never even suspected. The killer would have had to possess a high level of organisation that just isn't evident in the named suspects that we've talked about today, maybe with the exception of Kaczynski. They were all off enough to draw attention to themselves, especially Dan, who was particularly disorganised, and her other poisoning attempts, they were kind of obvious and poorly planned. I just think the person responsible would be more calculating and more organised, which they would have had to have been not to have been caught after all these years. I think the strongest suspect to me is James Lewis, because it seems premeditated that he was going to set her boss up for revenge or something. Did he, Was he really just waiting for some bad thing to happen to use these envelopes or whatnot? But on the other hand, he pulled off this really sophisticated switch, but he got caught in days from writing a letter. So that doesn't match. He wasn't sophisticated enough to to send a letter that wouldn't be traced back to him, but he was able to not leave fingerprints on any of these Tylenol bottles or you know what I mean I don't exactly it seems like if he did something super organized why was he super disorganized after that yeah I still have some questions here if it was some random person trying to destabilize Johnson and Johnson or destabilize our pharmaceutical industry or just cause panic and terror they just stopped they did it once and then moved on that i don't know that just doesn't fit anyone unless we're looking at they were targeting one person possibly someone who didn't actually die and they didn't do it again and maybe they killed them by other means to me that's the only thing that makes sense considering it just stopped it's interesting how it's big events like this that change things to me It seems so crazy that we ever had medication that someone could just pull a top off, add something to, and seal it back up, and no one would ever know. But I guess we don't think of rules until someone makes a need for a rule. And it's interesting that that event changed things not just in the U.S., but worldwide. So we'll go ahead and close out. I want to give a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. We have had a great response to our mini episodes, so we're really glad you guys like them, even as they're growing less mini as they go. I'm sure you don't mind. So I want to give a shout out to Sylvia, Francis, Dennis, and Marie M. Thank you guys so much for that. And to our five-star reviewers, again, those keep coming in and we appreciate that. To Miss Mary 88, Mina in England, Extreme Director, a username that's actually a string of emojis, but you're in the US and you left the review on October 30th, so I hope you're still listening. Thank you so much. And to Synth276, I really appreciate your review. So thank you guys for that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a group and a page. Insight is two words, and that will help you find us a lot more easily. We are Insightful Pod on Twitter, Insight Pod on Instagram. Everything you need is on our website, 
insightpod.com. We also are wrapping up our March giveaway on March 30th. And that is if you give a donation of $5 or more to any domestic violence charity, you'll be entered to win a blue apron code. And that's worth about $70. And also I will donate $50 of my own money to the domestic violence charity that you donated yours to. There are details on our website on how to submit that. Did I get everything? (laughs) I think so. Allie's always so organized, so pay attention to her housekeeping episodes because she does a much better (laughs) job than I do. So thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week.